So throughout 2023, been far, far too many stories in Alberta on violent crime. We've had shootings, we've had police officers murdered in Edmonton, random attacks, stabbings, daylight killings, you name it. One in Edmonton recently grabbed a lot of headlines, an 11-year-old kid uh, apparently deliberately shot and killed. Like I say, those are the headline grabbers, but there have been lots of coverage of what we've called a general state of social disorder or civil disorder, especially in the big cities in Alberta. So what's going on? And what can we expect in 2024? Dan Jones is the Chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College, but not just another academic. Dan spent years and years on the job with the Edmonton Police Service, so he knows this from both sides. Dan, thanks for coming in. Merry Christmas. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Um, Okay, so as someone who's really, I mean, you grew up in the job, right? Your your dad was a cop. This has been your life. Um, Give us your assessment. How bad do you think it is? Because we see the stories, and I think people are concerned. How bad is crime in Alberta right now? It's getting up there, but it's a cyclical thing, and I think that's one of the things that we forget. We think that this is, oh my goodness, it's so bad. There were times um, in the, like I can think of a time in 2005 where we had 14 shootings in two weeks. Okay. Right? So crime is cyclical, so it's depending on what's going on in in that criminal world, whether there's unrest around drug trade or unrest around turf wars or whatever. So that's one of those things that we have to pay attention to. And I think sometimes we do, we make a mistake, we go a year by year comparison, we're like, oh, compared to last year. Yeah. We need to go compared to over the last five or ten years and go what what's it look like and and I think what you'd see then if you really followed the data properly, you'd see that it's not as bad as what it seems to be, if that makes any sense. It does. It makes perfect sense because I think, you know, especially somebody who's been in this business for a long time, those big stories come along. Like I say, the two, the two police officers killed in Edmonton, the 11-year-old boy shot on the south side uh, a month ago. You've got incidents in Calgary in shopping centers and things like that. So when people see that, it's kind of like that that changes it for people, right? It, it, maybe it gives us a, mix, uh, a false perception of how bad it is, but it certainly does affect what the public are feeling and thinking. For sure. And it's and, and, and when you hear like, think, like the shooting at Kingsway Mall where some yeah, random week, guy yeah. gets shot and he loses a part of his hand and and that kind of stuff is terrifying for sure but it's also we're not Baltimore we're not we don't you know Baltimore is a city of 600,000 in the United States that has roughly 350 murders a year right um, we're a city of 1.4 million and we have you know 30 to 40 mur- murders a year yeah. so we're still relatively safe where where we are when we when you look at that stuff but it's to me it's also the ran some of the random violence like on the LRT you're seeing a random violence oh, for on sure. the RT and people are talking about that I have colleagues that take the LRT every day and don't feel unsafe and I've t- I sat and chatted with them so the stories are what the stories are and yeah. yes you're seeing some of the 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 drug use and you're seeing random violence but at the, still at the same time there's a lot of people that use those those services and don't feel unsafe and don't have any incidents. No, and have zero incidents. They're and they take it every fine. day. Uh, as someone who's lived in this city all my life and lived in this province, I, I do. It, there, I notice a difference, and I'm not saying it's necessarily criminal, but you do see. Like I go walking in the River Valley down in Gold Bar, and you see tents, and you see encampments, and you. So there's definitely been a change. How much of a perception does or does that create? Because people see it. I mean, you go downtown Edmonton or Calgary, you see it. It's in your face, Dan. You can't get away from it. It scares people. 100%. And that's where, uh, that, I'm the same as you. I grew up in the city, and I, we didn't see that before. And I, I, no, I, I walked no. beat on 118th Avenue from 19, from 2000 to 2005, um, for, and I didn't see that there, right? We had we had the odd individual who was unhoused, but we didn't have encampments like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that speaks to a greater issue, and I and I think that speaks to how we're servicing those individuals. Like how our shelter systems are, some some of the unhoused people don't want to go to them because yeah. they feel unsafe. Yeah. And also there was a some a 
an article done in the Walrus by Sarah Schulman talking about sleep and shelters. You don't actually sleep in a shelter because it's never dark. You're four feet away from someone else who's possibly tweaking out because they're... You're on guard. Dope, you're on guard. So you're not sleeping. And sleep is really important. <laughs> like, anyone who hasn't slept for a long time, well, for like, sure. it's, it sucks, right? So... It's, it's, I think we have to change the way we do things like that. And I think you'll see a, you'd see a difference in that unhoused population. And the other part of that unhoused population, when I was still with the police service, we looked at who was committing the most crime. And I think we narrowed it down to roughly nine people committing 50% of the harm within the unhoused population. Is that right? Nine people? Yeah. It's, so it's that concept of the power few. And what you need to do is focus on those power few individuals who are causing the most harm. Because the vast majority of unhoused people are not... Of course. Criminals. They're yeah. individuals who don't have a place to live and unfortunately sometimes have men- mental health and drug issues. Um, okay. I want to ask you about a couple of things in that area because I think it's important. And, and, and those social issues, and that's tough, but that's we the old saying, you can't police your way out of this. That's true, mm, right? You can't. We, we're going to have to come up with a strategy to make sure that we deal with this uh, on a more granular, like where it starts, what are the causes? How do you even do that? Where do you start with that? Then? You know what, what I would suggest, and, and I, I'm unfortunate, we did research myself and along with the University of Alberta Prison Project, uh, research on the victim offender overlap and incarcerated individuals. So we've interviewed over 800 people incarcerated in uh, Western Canadian, both federal and provincial prisons. And we found that 97% of women and 95% of men have uh, violent or sexual violent histories where they've been traumatized, with the vast majority of that violence occurring prior to them ever committing a crime as in childhood. Hmm. And I think what we need to do, if I, if I had a magic wand, I would take money out of whatever pot the province has, that $20 billion that they gave to the oil field or whatever billion dollars they have in surplus, and, a pro- and, and, and make it so people can go get help, so people can go get cognitive behavior therapy, EMDR, whatever therapy they need. Because yep. in our research, we actually had an individual, we had several individuals that needed therapy, lots of that wanted it, but we had one specific one that stands out to me where she had no criminal background, and she went and robbed a bank. Um, and waited for the police and then turned herself in and then got a federal prison sentence because she heard she could get uh, cognitive behavior therapy what? In, the prison ge- in the prison cell. And she'd been on a list for three years to try to get it outside of jail. And she had a very, very uh, unfortunate sexual violent history in foster homes. And we have people doing that. We have people, and we have other people going, we've had other people saying, I'm so glad to be in jail. I don't have to use crystal meth, specifically our, our female sample, because they were using drugs to stay awake. Not because they were you know, these addicts that needed the drugs that they were afraid they were going to get raped on the street. Right. So there's just unsafe spaces and there's unsafe spaces. And we also, and and we're not addressing the trauma that creates basically the vast majority of our crime. And if you look at the social determinants of health and crime, they're almost identical. One we deal with with a public health lens and the other one we deal with the justice lens and it's not effective. Exactly. And so many people, as we know, fall through the cracks. Um, I want to ask you about what we have seen in terms of responses from the city and in terms of responses from um, the province, and that is adding more enforcement. And well, I agree, you can't police your way out of this. At the same time, Dan, don't we have to say, yeah, but we do need to have a presence for the interest of public safety? A hundred percent. And and the perception of safety and is also there too. Of right? course. Um, I would suggest that there are evidence-based ways of doing things that that are not being done right now. So there's a, a concept called hotspots policing. Hotspots policing is. Not flooding an area with police officers. It's going into these kind of micro spaces, so like a couple block radius, and you take two police officers and you put them in there and they kind of walk around and they say hi to people. No action imperative, not trying to get warrants, not trying to get into people's pockets, not trying to arrest people. 
It's really just being present. Just being visible. 15 minutes of time and randomized throughout the day. So 15-minute intervals randomized throughout the day. It's called the Coper Curve. Um, and the research on it is extensive and it's it's effective. 30 to 80% reductions in crime on every experiment that's been done across the world. Wow. And 15 minutes, a couple times a day. Yeah. Just be there. Just be there. 50. And the reason the 15 minutes works is if you're there all the time, you just become part of the street furniture and they'll commit crime around you. The 15 minutes, is, it sits in their brain like, oh, there's cops everywhere. Sure, it yeah, feels yeah. like there's cops everywhere more when they're not there all the time. They're just there for every 15 minutes because the concept of blitz policing where you flood an area with yep, people, yep. that actually, all the research on that actually shows that it increases crime um, because as soon as the police leave, then everyone's like, we got five minutes to get, we got to eat and all of a sudden, boom, crime happens. So it's about really following those evidence-based practices and using your resources um, with that will actually be way more uh, efficient. Does that fit to that whole community policing model that we hear so much about? Because isn't that sort of more of the blitz, or, or are they trying to incorporate both of those? What you're seeing right now, I think you're seeing a lot of more of the blitz is what you're yeah, seeing. Yeah, and, and, and that's unfortunate, but it's, that's what you're seeing. Um, and it's because it's really hard. Uh, that's where that, that line between academics and policing gets blurred. And, sure, And yeah. it's hard because it's like, well, you can't tell, don't tell us what to do. You're an academic. And it's uh, like Larry Sherman from the University of Cambridge where I went and got my master's degree. He's big on evidence-based policing. He has a conference every year. But he always talks about how it's that it's that link in between because people don't like to be told what to do, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's like, I know what to do because I've done it for so long. Although we, if we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we have the same result, and we know what that—that's well, exactly. But I, I, you make a good point, and I think there are certain industries, and 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 I'm way pro police, and I, I say that every time we talk about this. But I think there is sort of a, there probably is a mindset where, hey, listen, you, you haven't been out here, you haven't seen what we're doing, you have, right? So you're you're seeing this from both sides of the line. But I'm sure I, I would have the same thing if somebody came in here uh, who had studied media all their life and never actually gone and stuck a mic in somebody's face. I'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. So I can see where that comes in, but the studies there, the data is there so it is important it is and it's and it's it's really that um it's that getting to the next level of policing like i'm a huge i'm a i'm a pro police person too sometimes i know people think i sound like i'm negative about the police and i don't, I don't ever Which mean is to crazy <laughs> tend to come across that way but i'm a police reformer too like i'm a believer that we need to change the way we do policing like we've had this um conversation since the, the i remember this conversation starting in 1991 with rodney king okay we yeah change the way policing is done it's marginally changed. Yeah. We're having the same, we had the same conversations after the murder of George Floyd that we did after the beating of Rodney King. True. And it's about where do the police need to change? And one of the things I think the police need to do, and I think this is really important, is asking the community what they need from us rather than telling the community what they need from us. And we've had a, we have a history of just going in and doing things because we think we know what's right for the community. And I use the, the worst example in Canadian history of when the government thought they were doing the right thing was residential schools. Mm -hmm. And we're still kind of doing that sometimes. We're still going in and telling people, this is what you need. This is what you need. We know best. We know what you need best. Um, there was a police chief in, uh, he's in in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. Uh, Harry Dolan was his name. And he was the guy who went out and said to the community, let's figure out what you want. And he did like these dot democracy things where he'd give everyone 10 dots. He'd get tables of eight people. They'd write all their prior policing priorities. They put them up on the wall and he'd have the entire community go and place their dots on what they thought the priorities were. Okay. And they were not even close to what the police thought the priorities were. Is that right, hey? Yeah. And they ended up out of that building a youth, a couple of youth centers for youth to, and, and he ended up reducing crime because he went and asked the community what they needed and what they needed was what they 
was stuff for their youth, and crime went down. And that's what you're talking about, the evidence-based. We yeah. can see it. Yeah. This, this is what worked. Um, uh, Dan, we need to take a quick break. We're chatting with Dan Jones, who is the Chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College and a former officer uh, for the Edmonton Police Service. We'll be back with more right after this. We're chatting with Dan Jones, who is the Chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College. Uh, spent How long were you on the force, Dan? 25 years. You did the full 25, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so he, he was with EPS for a long, long time. So he's got a unique perspective in terms of he, he's done all the book learning, but he also spent a lot of time on the streets and uh, so he, he he knows this inside out and backwards and one thing that we've heard so much about Dan and you mentioned that nine representatives of our houseless population sort of drove the majority of crime we hear so much about bail reform bail reform the revolving door you're arresting the same guy day after day how big of an issue is that right now so I, I think bail reform is something that has been talked about multiple times over my course of my career and I don't think bail for reform is the answer okay um, you know, we had a remand center that housed roughly 450 people, and we built one that roughs, houses roughly 1,750 people, yeah. and we Still have 1,750 yep. people in there, right? Um, it's about reintegration. It's about what do you do when they're on bail? Um, you know, and this is this is the one of those things the police get blamed for, but this isn't the police's job, no. right? And someone gets released on bail, and they have conditions, and they have all these things, and, you know, recently in that Kingsway Mall shooting, that person was on bail. Yep, yep. There is no resources for these folks. There is no counseling. There is no um, addictions treatment. There is nothing. It's here's a piece of paper that says you're not supposed to use drugs or alcohol. Well, if that was that easy, I guess a lot of people sure. would re- recover from addictions a lot yeah, quicker. We if wouldn't I just have the problem. A piece of paper, right? So I, I think bail, bail reform becomes the easy thing. I think it's we have to look at the whole justice system. We have to go, okay, let's put some resources into these folks. And the problem is we still have a punishment mentality. So I was like, why would we put resources into them? They made these decisions. Well, they did they? Um, I'm not saying you take away their responsibility, but when you look at the concept or an impact of trauma on someone's growth and brain power, and if they've been traumatic their whole life and they've had all these traumas going on, they're going to make different decisions based yeah. on the trauma, and we need to address those things. And I think that's where we need to start putting the investments into is when someone is on bail, let's make sure that they have us a, 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 the ability to get counseling, to make sure they have the ability to get different uh, resources. Because what we do right now is we just, you're, you're so dangerous on Saturday that we can't let you out of jail, and then two weeks later we let you out of jail. And that makes no sense. So I understand people with the bail reform concept, but we wouldn't have enough jail cells to keep everyone incarcerated. That's that thing we were talking about earlier. You can't police your way in. No. You do need to address it at the root cause, right? And 100%. Have we, I mean, like you say, because uh, we've talked about this for years and years and years and years and years. Have we done that? I mean, have we, that's what the bail rules that were brought in were meant to do, right? And now we were in a position where it hasn't worked and we're critical of the quote-unquote woke policies and the lack justice system. So where's the line? How do you find the balance? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting and it's, I think it's almost too simple and it's too simple for us to sometimes understand is the permission that we can give someone, and this is the power that we have in law enforcement, is the permission we can give someone to be different. And what I mean by that is I have several people in my life that, that used to, I used, used to put in jail, yeah. but they're in my life now differently. Yeah. Um, and I'll use the example. I, I, I call her my adopted daughter. Um, she calls me dad. I put her in jail for conspiracy to commit murder uh, when she was 18 years old, and she went to jail for five years where she gave birth to her first daughter in Remand Center. Um, I started, because I was listening to her on a wiretap, I heard these two different people. I heard this gangster, and I heard this really nice sister who was trying to take care of her brothers because their parents died. Yeah. And just going in, spending time with her, and having conversations with her, and giving her opportunities, she now is doing wonderfully. She's never committed another offense. She's married to a great person. She's a great mom. And it was nothing more than just having 
spending some time and giving someone some permission to be different than what they've been told they are, that concept of labeling theory, which is an old theory, but it seems to be true. People will strive to the label that they're given. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't realize in policing that we have the ability, instead of being like, oh, you're a piece of crap or whatever, it's the, you know what, I think you can do a lot better for your life. And if you need anything, let me know. And it's simple things like that. And I've been fortunate and, you know, it's been something that's and been wonderful for me is I've got to see people succeed yep. just yep. by saying those words. And I think we need to bring the, the concept of compassion into the justice system as a competency um, where we are compassionate with the people we arrest. And there's there's evidence that shows if you arrest a, a domestic violence offender with compassion, it's they're less likely to recidivate. They're less likely to reoffend. Just how we... Okay, deal. what do you mean arrest with compassion? Well, what was that, what's that look like? You know, for? it's the... It's having when you arrest somebody, you can arrest somebody professionally and and just the facts kind of thing. Yep. But you can also be like, hey, I know you're going through something. Yeah. I'm yep. not a therapist. If there's anything you need, or and the and, and one of the things that happened to me lots and it's happened to many police officers is, can you please not put my handcuffs on the handcuffs on me in front of my kids? In front of the kids, yeah. Yeah. And some police officers will say, no, nope, that's the policy. I have to do that. And some yep. will say, of course, man. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's knowing those weaves and those those bobs and being and and, and it's 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 it sounds silly, it's just being nice. Because when you're in those situations and I've been in those situations and don't get me wrong, I have been the wrong way too. Yeah, I have sure. made mistakes, I have been the guy who loses it and has a bad temper because someone's called me names and whatever and I'm calling them names back. So I'm not in any way saying I'm some perfect yeah, specimen. Sure. What I'm saying is what I learned through my career is when you are compassionate you sure see a change in people. And like after the murder of George Floyd, I had multiple people call me that were I've arrested and asked me if I was okay. That to me was like a huge um, compliment. Like uh, you can be compassionate and we can be on the opposite sides of the fence, but we can actually be nice to each other. And I think that's important. Part of me is sitting here thinking, yeah, but that's impossible. It's not because you've done it, but it seems to be, if, if I'm a cop, I was out there trying to just get through the day, that, that seems like a lot to ask, but maybe it's not. Well, and you know what, when, it, when you look at those things and you look at the research on police legitimacy, Tom Tyler has, has does so, so much of it. If the community sees you as a legitimate, so if you go into that community and you are and I learned this in beats. Like I was walking a beat, and I was coaching boxing. I was coaching kids who I was arresting. Yeah, and yeah. I was in the corner with kids that I that were gang members, and the gang members were cheering the kid on. And then I was on the fight card later as the main event, and the gang members were cheering me on. And it was something I learned throughout the system: is we actually aren't that different. Right. Yeah. And, we're all people here. And and that was the beauty of community policing. And that and for me was you get you get to be part of that community, and even though you're on the different sides of the fence, you can do that with care and compassion and be nice to each other and and it sounds so, so simple but the research shows that if you are seen as a legitimate power holder by the community that you have to use force less people uh, commit crime less people reoffend less and it's really that being nice is your number one crime prevention tool and you if and and that's just not me talking randomly like yeah, there's a ton of research on that Tom Tyler Justice Tank could be Anthony Bottoms you can look it up if anyone wants to email you email them papers <laughs> because that's really what that's really a huge component of it and then you start to be seen as and i had people call me and apologize to me for offending is that right, eh? Like, call me up and say, Hi, I'm sorry, man, I didn't mean to let you down. I, I did this, and I'm sorry I did. And and yeah, I'm like, well, you don't have to apologize to me, but don't do it again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it's 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 that weird thing, and that's what the beauty of community-based policing, when you get right down to it and you become part of the fabric of that community, it, you, you just become part of the fabric of that community. 
Yeah, uh, Dan, we're out of time. We, I, I could talk for hours. We'll have to do this again in the near. Maybe we'll make this a regular thing. Well, absolutely. We'll have a chat. Dan Jones, who is the chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College, longtime police officer with the Edmonton Police Service. Dan, thanks for being here. Merry Christmas. Happy Merry Christmas. New Year. Thanks we'll for having soon. me.